It says, beginning at verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in or into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. You can turn in the back of your hymnal to page 875, 875 and 876, where we'll read Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of the Bible's teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity. You recall last week, Reverend Bauman taught from Lord's Day 7 on the question of what is true faith, and they were told that Uh, This faith we must have, this faith that is um, personal, this faith that is spirit-wrought, worked by the gospel, this, this faith that we are granted forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation only because Christ, because of Christ's merit, that it's ultimately a faith in the gospel, which we see in in question. 22, it asked last week, what then must a Christian believe? And the answer is all that is promised us in the gospel. A summary of which is given in the articles of the Apostles' Creed. And so it then walked us through the creed in question 23. Now referring back to the creed, it asks us in question 24, which we'll read responsively, how are these articles divided into three parts? God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Beloved, when little Kinsley was baptized just a few moments ago, the baptismal formula that we read said, I baptize you into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Not just in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but into. It is into a covenantal relationship with, of which baptism is the sign. It is the sign which symbolizes the covenantal relationship between the triune God and his people, believers, and their children. 
And in that baptismal formula, which is, is taken directly from Matthew 28, if you look closely, it affirms two things about this God. It affirms that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Notice it is the singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in verse 19, not names, reminding us that these three persons are one, but also that they're distinct, as each of these three persons has a definite article before them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, distinct as suggested by the definite articles, yet one as suggested by the one name that they share. And what Matthew is really doing here is is he's taking these various themes and and threads from throughout his gospel, and, and he's showing us how they all tie together. He's spoken often throughout his gospel of the Father and of the privileged relationship that that Christ and his people enjoy with the Father. He has spoken often of the Son, the beloved Son. He's done the same with the Holy Spirit. And now at the end of the gospel, he, he brings each of these up and he ties them together and says, this is the God you are baptized into union with. One theologian puts it this way, commenting on Matthew 28, 19. He says, readers of Matthew's gospel are well prepared for these words. These words about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as Christ's divine sonship has been evident from the very first chapter. As all the persons of the Trinity revealed themselves at Christ's baptism as the deep love between the Father and the Son has been evident throughout the whole book, and as Christ was conceived and his mission accomplished in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, at the very end of the gospel, Matthew brings all of these together and says, this is the God you are baptized into union with. This is the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, into whom you are brought into a covenantal relationship with. It's on a day like today where we've just had the privilege of of witnessing a baptism. It's worth reflecting on what Matthew says about each of these three persons and what it means that Kinsley is in covenant with them. So I want to consider the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit under our first point, three distinct persons. I try to to wrap our minds around what that means theologically in a brief second point, one true eternal God, before ending with some application on the privilege of knowing this God. First, let's consider what Matthew tells us about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout his gospel. First, the Father. First reference that's made explicitly to the Father is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.45 where we're told that our Father in heaven makes the sun rise and the rain to fall both on the just and on the unjust. There we're reminded that he is the creator and also upholder of the world. The same thing that we're told in the Apostles' Creed and in Lord's Day 9, that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in them, and he still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence. 
Matthew 5 affirms that. And as we keep reading um, in, in the Sermon on the Mount and come to Matthew 6, we also see that those who are called God's children stand in a special relationship to him such that they are able to pray to him as father. I do not need to worry about food or about clothing because their heavenly father knows what they need. In Matthew 7, if they ask him for bread, will not give them a stone. If they ask him for a fish, will not give them a snake, but knows how to give good things to his children who ask him. According to Matthew 12 and Matthew 17, stand in in special relationship to him because of Christ. Jesus says at the very end of of Matthew 12 that, that your standing in relation to him determines your placement in God's family. It says mother and brothers are asking to speak to him. He says, who are my mother and brothers? But these, those who do the will of my Father in heaven, those who believe in me. And so he says in Matthew 12 that your, your, um, your standing in relation to him determines your placement in God's family and that united to him, Matthew 17, you are sons. The sons, he says, are free. And so Matthew develops this whole theology of, of adoption and of the fatherhood of God who Matthew 18, 14 will not allow even one of his children to perish. And again, this is the same comfort that we find in Lord's Day 9 and Lord's Day 10. What we're seeing is that the theology of of the persons of the Trinity that is taught in our catechism is coming straight from the Gospels. We see the same thing with God the Son. In the Creed, we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Does not Matthew 1 make clear that his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins? Matthew 1.21. That he is the Christ, Matthew 1.1, the Messiah. If you can think back a few years to, to, to when we, we first began preaching through Matthew's gospel a couple of years ago, does not the, the very nature of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 reveal that he is the only begotten Son of God. If you're still open in Matthew and want to turn there to Matthew 1, the, the way that every other name in that genealogy, the, the way that, that every name of every man in that chapter has an earthly father assigned to him. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Uh, Perez begot Hezron. Every name, every king has an earthly father assigned to them. But then we come to Matthew 1.16, and of Jesus, it simply says he was born of Mary. There is no physical father ascribed to him. We simply read that Jesus was born of Mary. Now, one theologian, Brandon Crow of Westminster Seminary, says, given the cadence of the genealogy up to this point in which every king is begotten by a father, this brief statement... This this ever so brief statement regarding Jesus' conception stands in stark contrast to everything that we've seen in the rest of the chapter. There is a Son of God Christology already in Matthew chapter 1. In the very beginning of the gospel, Matthew is teaching us that, that this Jesus is the Son of God. 
who, as we confess in the Creed, is conceived by the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1.18, Matthew 1.20, who is born of the Virgin Mary, not by ordinary means, but is both human and divine, born of a human mother and yet conceived by the Holy Spirit both human and divine, the Son of God, who will be declared as such at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, where the Father will say, this is my beloved Son. Matthew is very concerned that we understand just who this Jesus is. And he's also concerned that we understand just what this Jesus has come to accomplish. In fact, he tells us in that same passage that Christ's baptism in Matthew chapter 3 In verse 15, that he came to fulfill all righteousness. Which is why immediately after his baptism, he is led into the wilderness to to go and be tempted and pass the test that Adam and Israel both failed. Actively obeying God's law and resisting temptation, doing the very thing that we heard of this morning keeping every one of God's commands so that his active obedience might be imputed to us by faith. Keeping every one of God's commands and resisting temptation in order to qualify him to suffer and die in our place as our blameless substitute, the the Passover lamb of Matthew 26. That's the next thing that the creed goes on to say, that he would suffer under Pontius Pilate, be crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. This beloved Son of God suffers not for his own sin, but for yours and mine. And Christ speaks of that often throughout the gospel. In fact, as we make our way towards Calvary, towards the the latter half of the gospel, he, he starts speaking of it with greater and greater frequency. In Matthew 16, just after Peter confesses that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It says that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, his, his enemies so far throughout the gospel, and be killed. He says the same thing in Matthew 17 on the way down from the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, you, you heard of that last week from Reverend Gangar. And then again in Matthew 20, it says, He took the twelve aside and he said, We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and to crucify which Matthew 26 and Matthew 27 will describe in great detail. How he's mocked, beaten, crucified, how he suffers unspeakable pain and terrors of hell, as we confess in in question and answer 44. Do you see how the articles of the creed are, are drawn from the gospel to show us just who this Jesus is? He is the perfect one who is both human and divine who will die for our sins. 
then in Matthew 28, rise from the dead and eventually ascend, which he speaks of often as well in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 24 and Matthew 26. He says over and over, the Son of Man will come into his kingdom and you will see the sign of the Son of Man coming on the clouds. It's a reference to Daniel 7 about the ascension. In fact, that's even alluded to in Matthew 28, 18, when Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. That's an allusion to the passage from Daniel 7 that we heard in our call to worship. Christ, the suffering servant, is exalted and given all authority, even to judge the living and the dead, which he speaks of in Matthew 25. And so the creed is drawing its articles about who Christ is from the Gospels, where we see that he is the only begotten Son of God who will save his people from their sins by being supernaturally conceived, by actively fulfilling all righteousness, and then suffering and dying in the place of sinners to be raised and descend to God's right hand from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. As we tempted to sing just before the service from number 387, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. This is the gospel's portrait of Jesus, one with all authority, who is also gentle and lowly in heart, Matthew 11, and will die for our sins. This is who Christ is. And then the Spirit, we, we see also at every turn from the very beginning, it is the Holy Spirit by whom Christ is conceived. Matthew 1.18 or Matthew 1.20. It is the Spirit who uh, anoints Christ at his baptism where it says the heavens are opened and the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove anointing him for ministry. Which Matthew 12 speaks of when it says of God's servant, I will put my spirit upon him. Quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Christ's whole ministry is a spirit-anointed, spirit-empowered ministry. It is the spirit who leads him into the wilderness as the second Adam in true Israel in Matthew 4 and empowers him to resist Satan's temptation. The Spirit empowers his his miraculous ministry. Matthew 12, Jesus says, It is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. The Holy Spirit is everywhere present in Christ's ministry. In fact, in that same passage in Matthew 12, where he says that it's by the Spirit of God that he casts out demons, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a, a personal and divine being who can be blasphemed is a personal and divine being. The Gospels affirm the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. The Gospels affirm the co-equality of the Spirit with the Father and the Son. And even as the Creed goes on to say, the Spirit's work in in creating the church of Matthew 16, the, the communion of saints of Matthew 18, applying the forgiveness of sins of that same chapter and the bodily resurrection and life everlasting of Matthew 25. The Spirit's work is everywhere, either explicitly or implicitly described. The Gospel of Matthew affirms a distinct work of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As it says in question 25, they are three distinct persons, which we see on the the several occasions where each of them are present together 
at the same time. You might be aware that there are various um, heresies or, or misunderstandings, errors related to the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, one of those is a heresy called modalism that, that teaches that um, God the Father, God the Son, and, and God the Holy Spirit are not three distinct persons, but rather uh, one person who, who just sort of puts on different masks at, at, at different times so that the Father uh, of the Old Testament becomes the Son of, of the New Testament and, and the Spirit of this present age. But on three different occasions... Matthew shows us that is not the case as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as as three distinct persons are together at the same time. He shows us that to to warn us against any such error. We see all three uh, present at the baptism of Jesus where Christ comes up from the water. The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove and the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. See something very similar at the Mount of of Transfiguration, where Christ reveals his glory, which is otherwise concealed. We often sing at Christmas time and hark the herald angels sing, uh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see Christ throughout his his, uh, earthly ministry and the incarnation, his glory is veiled. But for a brief moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see the glory of the Son unveiled. And then we hear the voice of the Father speak and say, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And all the while, there is a bright cloud overshadowing them. I think Vern Poitras and Meredith Klein are right when they say throughout the Old Testament, the glory cloud is associated with the Spirit. Look at a passage like Isaiah 63. I think it's verses 11 and 12 where speaking of the glory cloud in the wilderness, in the Exodus, it says that God put his spirit in the midst of them. It refers to that glory cloud as the Holy Spirit. And so there in Matthew 17, as as this glory cloud appears yet again, we, we have the spirit of God, the son of God, and the voice of God the Father all together at once. And again, at Christ's resurrection on the mount, which he appointed in Matthew 28, when he sends out his disciples and tells them to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, each with their own distinct, definite article because they are three distinct persons as seen at the baptism of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus, and now the great commission given by Jesus. Matthew wants us to see that the Father... The Son and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons into whom we are brought into covenantal union with. And so we must appreciate the work of each distinct person as as we sang in in number 448. As we uh, reveled in the fact that God the Father chose us from eternity, that uh, God the Son shed his own blood for our redemption, and that God the Holy Spirit uh, joins us to him and ignites us to service and song giving us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and, and uh, empowering our whole Christian life in service to God. And we must appreciate the work of, of each distinct person. We must worship each person. We must enjoy communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because we are Trinitarian Christians. And so we must not neglect the diversity or plurality within the Godhead. 
And yet at the same time, Matthew would also have us not ignore the unity of the Godhead. And that's what we want to think about next as we consider how these three distinct persons are one true eternal God. We want to be brief on on this second point. We've seen how Matthew emphasizes the distinct contributions of each person of the Trinity, the distinct work of each of them in accomplishing our salvation, the privileges of union and communion with them. But it's also the case that throughout his gospel, and in Matthew 28 in particular, Matthew emphasizes the unity of the persons, that God is not only three, but also one. We see this throughout the gospel and how Christ is spoken of as equal with God. All the way back in in Matthew 1, in that great um, Advent text, it refers to him as Emmanuel, the the name of, of our church, which means God with us. A couple chapters later in Matthew 3, John the Baptist is said to be the voice of the one in the wilderness who prepares the way for the Lord. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ assigns to himself the divine prerogative of judging all men in Matthew 9, of being able to forgive sins in Matthew 12, of being Lord of the Sabbath. In in, um, Matthew 22, he refers to himself as the Lord of Psalm 110. Is the judge of the nations in Matthew 25, the one who will come to the right hand of the power in Matthew 26. And then here in Matthew 28, he places himself in a position of equality with the Father and the Spirit, saying, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Making clear to us what Matthew has been suggesting all along, that the Son is equal with the Father and with the Spirit, who Matthew 12 affirms is divine. Matthew 28 sort of puts the exclamation point on it, pulling all of these threads together, affirming not only a distinction between the persons, but also unity by applying the the singular name in verse 19 to all three. In the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What theologian R.T. France calls a significant pointer toward the Trinitarian doctrine of the three persons in one God. Or Van Genderen and Velema, Matthew 28, 19 does not say that baptism should be administered in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the name here is the common name that expresses unity of being. We see both plurality and unity in Matthew 28, 19. This God who is three in one, both in being and in purpose. The work of each of the three being complementary in order to bring about our salvation. Again, Brandon Crow says, we find in Matthew good news that is Trinitarian in nature. Good news that comes to us from Jesus, the resurrected Messiah who has died for our sins but then been raised up and given all authority in heaven and on earth, who is the Son of God and mediator who grants us the privilege of becoming sons and daughters of his Father by grace and the abiding promise that he is Emmanuel who is now with us and will continue to be until the end of the age by his Spirit. The good news of the gospel is Trinitarian news. 
The Father sends the Son in the power of the Spirit to live, die, and rise for our salvation, which the Spirit applies by giving us eyes to see the glory and beauty of the Son, and by union with Him, be made children of His Father. The good news Christ commissions His church to spread is Trinitarian news. So Cam, Steph, as we come to our last point about Knowing the privilege, or the, the privilege of knowing this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are, are three in one, that means that you have the task and, and great privilege of making Kinsley aware of the great privilege of knowing this God. She is baptized into a covenantal relationship with him. That's the meaning of the word into. It's not just that she's baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, um, as in by the authority of, but she is baptized into a covenantal relationship with him that has both promises and obligations. Promises being what we read of in the form that God the Father testifies and seals to us that he makes an eternal covenant of grace with us and adopts us as his children and heirs. That God the Son washes us in his blood from all our sins and unites us to himself so that we share in his death and resurrection and are freed from our sins and counted righteous before God. And God the Spirit will make his home within us and sanctify us as members of Christ, imparting to us what we have in Christ, namely the washing away of our sins and daily renewing of our lives. As a result of his work within us, we will be presented without the stain of sin among the assembly of the elect in life eternal. These are the, the Trinitarian promises of the gospel. Promises relating to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Promises uh, that, that, that ultimately amount to, to the promise of justification, the promise of adoption, and the promise of sanctification unto glorification. These are precious gospel promises that you're to remind her of. These are precious gospel promises that all of us as parents are to hold out before our children. Promises of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. As you make her to know the blessing of these promises, you make her to know what beautiful promises God condescends to make to us by grace. So every time that you come to church with her and she grows older, witness a baptism. Every time you look back on this day and and point her to her baptism certificate or to pictures from this day, um, every time that you have opportunities to instruct and discipline her and then remind her and assure her of God's forgiveness. Each and every Lord's Day, as you bring her to church to hear the gospel proclaimed, you remind her of the promises of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit that are signified in baptism, which she is called to respond to in true faith. Which is the next part of the baptism form that we read, that God calls us and places us under obligation to respond to these gospel promises in faith and repentance. So you remind her often of what God promises, but also how she must respond. You pray that God would give her eyes to see the beauty, the glory of his son. 
the absolute necessity of being clothed in his righteousness as we heard this morning, no hope without it, that you would pray that God would make her to know the privilege of being welcomed into his family and having God as her father and being filled with his Holy Spirit who is our comforter and counselor who guides us in all wisdom. It is with us as Emmanuel until the end of the age. Make her to know the privileges of knowing this great God, and you pray that God would bless your feeble efforts. This is your task. This is what you've just vowed to do, to do all that you can to teach her and have her taught this doctrine of salvation. Which means you pray for her. It means you, you read God's word to her in your home. It means you bring her to church morning and afternoon. You catechize her. You, you give her a God-centered education. You pray that God would bless all of these efforts so that even in your home, you are making disciples as Matthew twenty-eight nineteen calls you to, calls all of us to, to teach our children the privilege of knowing this great God as we witness a, a baptism and hear the vows that are made to be renewed in the vows that we have made. As parents, to be reinvigorated in, in holding out before our children the promises and obligations of the gospel. And not just as parents, but as, as those who have been baptized and are in covenant with him, the promises and obligations of the gospel to each of us that we are brought into a covenantal relationship with this God who is three in one and must love him with all of our hearts, must cling to him in true love, must repent of our sins and trust in what he has done. Enjoying communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit until the end of the age, the glory of this great God who is three in one. Can may he give you and Steph grace to do that, and may he give all of us grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. God, we thank you that you reveal yourself in Scripture to be one, and yet also to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We confess that we cannot wrap our minds around this mystery But Lord, we respond in awe and we respond in worship and we thank you that you have brought us into communion with yourself. That you have condescended by grace to enter into covenant with us and graciously have signified that covenant union with the sign of baptism. Lord, we pray that we and her children would value and rejoice in the the great privileges of being in covenant with you and would respond to you in faith and repentance that we might enjoy those wonderful covenant blessings of justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification, that we might enjoy those wonderful covenant blessings of being clothed in the very righteousness of Christ, able to stand before you justified, brought into your family, uh, made more and more holy by your Holy Spirit who indwells us until eventually we stand before you without the stain of sin 
and our lowly bodies are transformed into the likeness of Christ's glorious body. Lord, we thank you for these precious gospel promises that you hold out to all of us this day. And we pray that each and every one of us would respond to these in faith and repentance. For Jesus' sake, amen.